Welcome back, Freedom Pack family. Guys, I want to issue an apology. In today's episode, there was a slight sound issue, which we are really upset about. In the last few months, we have invested heavily into producing the best audio experience possible for you guys, but something went wrong at parts in this episode it's not horrendous but there's a slight there's like a slight enhancement of the audio which doesn't make for the best audio experience we were very disappointed with it and it's not horrendous but we are conscious of it and we will try our best to not let this happen again so from lewis and myself we are really really sorry about that and we will try our best not to let that happen again we've done numerous interviews we do them every single week and this was the first time that this happened we're not quite sure how but we'll try our best not to let this happen again anyway today on the show we have the co-founder of wired magazine kevin kelly kevin has been a multiple time bestseller he's a legendary futurist he has led wired magazine to winning the national magazine award for excellence to put that into context that's like winning the oscars it's a pretty big deal if you ask me kevin is a go-to guy for hollywood movies who have sought after his advice for the realistic future portrayals in movies on top of this Kevin is at his own work featured in major publications like Life, Science, The New York Times, The Economist. Just considering the magnitude of that achievement is something. But when you consider that Kevin actually dropped out of college to spend a decade photographing around Asia in which to survive he literally had to run a newsletter in Tehran to survive financially (laughs) you know it's just crazy so many people know Kevin from his ideas surrounding the thousand true fans in this episode we dissect three major topics how Kevin operates and how he made the decision to leave behind the standard path and to go and create his own way a thousand true fans the meaning of it how to get them and how to keep them and then lastly we talk about ai i think this is a really really interesting podcast as always guys we'd love to have your feedback reach out to us on instagram at freedom pact or send us an email freedom pact gmail.com we read everyone so please on top of this if you research into Kevin, I believe it's Tim Ferriss that said that he was the most interesting man on the planet. <laughs> so, you know, I think it goes without saying that this is a guy that really knows what he's talking about. I won't drag on any further. Kevin Kelly, welcome to the Freedom Pact. Oh, it's such a delight to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So a place that we'd love to start is you left university when it wasn't particularly 
advisable to do so. You spent yes. a lot of time photographing around Asia. So I just want to know, why did you decide to go against the societal grain? Well, influenced by the hippies and the whole Earth catalog, which I discovered in my last year of high school, I had been reading things like the American philosopher Henry David Thoreau, who wrote a famous book called Walden, which was basically about dropping out and um, the virtues of simplicity, you know, where he built his own home, his own house with his own hands. And that kind of do-it-yourself, invent-your-own-life, march to a different drummer was both in the air with the, the hippies dropping out and running to off to the farms to kind of reinvent their own civilization. Um, so it wasn't just me. And I think perhaps if I had been born 10 years earlier, I, I wouldn't have been so inclined. But um, I was sort of empowered by things like the Whole Earth Catalog, which is this internet on newsprint, so to speak, where you could find out how to build your own home or start your own homeschool or um, grow your own wheat and vegetables and uh, travel around the world, by the way. And so I um, kind of took its lessons to heart and said, well, they're doing it. I can, I can do this. And, um, uh, and it, it worked. Um, I read books on how to do these things, and I went off and did them. During this this period of time, where did you get that confidence to do this? Was it through those stories, or was there any story you were maybe telling yourself? How did you just get the confidence to make such a brave decision? That's a good question, because I had been doing it kind of all my life. As a kid, we, we didn't have very much money, and it was a very different world back in the 50s when I was growing up. Um, but as a kid, I... I, I got in my head that I wanted to make like a big train set. I got a little kind of Lionel model train and I wanted to make a large um, layout. And I kind of, you know, scrounged around as a 10 year old trying to do it, making my own, borrowing my dad's tools. And then the next project after I made that was I decided I, I read a book at the library called How to Make a Nature Museum. And I decided that's what I needed to do is I needed to make a nature museum in my basement and so I started constructing exhibits and I got the kids in my neighborhood to start collecting stuff for me and I made a nature museum and then a few years later I decided I saw another book at the library about doing chemistry at home and I decided I needed to make a chemistry lab and I that was my new thing so I kind of I don't know from very early age I kind of got this idea that you could do things or you can learn how to do things and um, just by doing them you didn't sort of need to ask permission you just did them and so by high school I was kind of very much in that mode of um, maybe believing in books that told you that you could do something how to um, it I, I'd already had the experience by, by that time that you could learn to do things just by deciding that you wanted to. So the idea of, well, I'm gonna to travel to Japan and, and Taiwan, even though I've never met a single person who's done it, even though I've never been out of the New England, even though I never met any Chinese, never touched 
chopsticks or eating Chinese food, I knew from reading a book that it was possible to do. And so um, I did it. As you're talking about books, when I looked into your story, the book which came to my mind, and, and I wonder if you've ever read it, it's a book by John Kay called Obliquity. No, I've never heard of it. Tell me about it. So this is a real interesting book. And the main thesis of this book is that things like success and happiness, they are best found indirectly. So if I just think of mm. examples, uh, an idea would be that instead of specifically going out and looking for a romantic partner, if you just focus on living your best life, then you're likely to attract someone. Another example would be instead of, if you say just seek building a fantastic business and give in value, then money will come to you as, as this principle that he talks about in obliquity. I wonder, the story you were just telling me, but it sort of made me think, but do you think that we should sort of follow that approach? I'm very hesitant to kind of like um, advise everyone else to do what I did because people are different. Their circumstances are different. Um, I, I don't think one size fits all. It worked for me. I am sure it can work for other people. Whether it works for you in particular, the person who is listening to this right now, I, I, I don't know. Um, so uh, I can only tell you that for me, what you just described, the obliquity, that resonates very strongly. I, I firmly believe that for myself, that that's, that's true in my own experience, um, that, uh, you know, um, I, I, I'm not a very goal-driven in the sense of, like, you know, having a plan, a life planned out. I'm a project-oriented person. I kind of have a project, and I kind of just do that, I do that project until it's done, and then I kind of pick another project, and that's sort of all that I've ever done, and that's worked for me. And um, uh, you know, I didn't have like a picture of who I wanted to marry, what time I wanted to marry, but you know, something came along. I wasn't really even trying at that time, so the idea of obliquity that that resonates. I've never heard that before, but it certainly seems true to me. Interesting. And I wonder, did you face any, say, societal pressure back during these experimental years? You're, you're like a sort of like a mad, a mad scientist during that period. <laughs> Were there teachers, parents saying, go down this route, go down this route? How did you sort of offset that? Well, I was one of five kids. We were all only one year apart, you know, very Catholic. We had, my mom had five kids in five years. Um, we were, and, and I think while they kind of, I'm going to say they weren't happy with my decision. Um, you know, they were expecting their kids to go to college. Um, and the, the biggest challenge for them was not my decision not to go because they kind of figured me out at that point. But they were, they were, they were concerned that I would be an influence on the other four right behind me. You know, a bad influence in that way. Um, but but in general, they were maybe perplexed, but supportive, not in the sense that they ever gave me any money. I got no money from them. But in terms of, you know, like my mom might be reading something. She was actually the, the person who told me about the whole Earth catalog because she had read about it somewhere in a magazine. She said, you'll like this. And she was absolutely right. So they were supportive in that sense of... Um, 
encouraging me to to do things, but really perplexed in terms of, you know, what I was going to do or or you know why I was doing them. You know, I was traveling for long periods overseas in Asia at a time long before there was any way to be in contact with my parents. So yeah, I would say once a month they might get a aerogram, a little letter from me saying, oh, hi, I'm in Kathmandu. I've been up in the Himalayas for the past month. I Oh, by the way, I got some hepatitis, but everything is fine. <laughs> you know, it's like... You know, I think about it now. It's like, man, that that's really that was rough on them because um, they didn't really know where I was. But you know, they kind of understood what I was doing. I was mailing back my film. I was shooting photography on film, and I would mail back these packages and ask my mom to put it in the freezer. Um, and so when I would come back, you know, a year later, I would then get a job and work to try to earn money in order to have the film processed. So, by the way, this is the worst way to learn photography. <laughs> you know, the feedback loop was insane and completely worthless. I never, I had no idea whether the pictures were any good until a year later. Um, and so, uh, but my point here was that my mom, you know, she was you know, carefully tending my, my film, care for it while while I'm away. So they supported me and I don't think I had much uh, resistance. I mean, I don't know. Or if I did, I wasn't paying attention to it. Um, I don't know. I wasn't shaking my fist against the windmill. I wasn't kind of in anybody's face. I was just, a, you know, another kind of hippie-ish kid doing his thing. Um, I wasn't getting into trouble. I, I wasn't. I never took any drugs at all, zero. So I, I think people were kind of pretty, pretty relaxed with me. They were, they were, they were. They gave me slack. You mentioned Kathmandu, there, Lewis, and I. We've just come back from there. We did the Everest uh-huh. Base Camp track. It was amazing. Cool. Yeah, yeah. I did that starting from Kathmandu, rather than I walked from with my brother from Kathmandu, and then we went beyond. We kept going to the east. Was it, was that a choice not to fly from Lakula? Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. So not a, not a nice airport. <laughs> um, no, it was. Um, I'd walked the other direction, going into Pokhara and up to Mustang, but uh, and also I'd walked from Kathmandu to Pokhara um, uh, while there was still the, a trail there because um, the highway had just been built. Um, so I think it was just kind of this notion of of wanting to you know, walk as far as we could. And it was a very, you know, it was 40 years ago, so there was not as much built up. It was it was a nicer walk. I'm not sure walking now would, would make much difference. Um, but yeah, so 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 we kept going beyond base camp to, to, to the east, my brother and I, where at that time, there were, the Chaikanas were, were none. And we were relying on the goodness and generosity of farmers who, had very little um, surplus. I mean, you know, even though we were willing to buy food, they didn't have very much food to spare. Um, that was one of the kind of um, realizations for me. One of the reasons why I'm a huge optimist about the world of technology is because when you when you realize the the state that most people in the world have lived for most of history, it was almost this. Malthusian um, threshold where p- 
people would basically breed until the point where they barely had enough food for themselves. And that was, that was the perpetual state of most of humanity for most of history. They were basically hungry most of the time. And, and we, 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 we felt that, we, we experienced that. We, 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 that. That's not theory to me, that's reality. And that why this the surplus that we have today through the progress of machines and oil and energy and intelligence is, is that we're, most people are, are not hungry anymore for most of the world. And the few that are remaining, we will in the next generation also lift them out of poverty too. That's that's the reality of progress that we should acknowledge. I suppose when you follow the path that you did and you sort of live this mad scientist life, I can't imagine that there are too many regrets. But I wonder, did you regret that one year in in university? I did. <laughs> I did. I, I mean, you know, it's a friend named George Dyson, who's the son of Freeman Dyson. Uh, and he always, well, I didn't even graduate from high school. I don't regret my high school days at all because I um, I learned a huge amount. I was a science nerd. I doubled up in science and math every year. I, I, mean, I think I'm still the only kid ever to graduate having taken every single math and science course that was available. The problem was, was that this was sitting in a classroom. And at that time in the um, 60s, there was no such thing as a gap year. There was no such thing as internships. There was no projects. And, and I just could not sit down in a classroom for grade 13 and beyond. I, I just I just needed to do and make something. I think today for kids, you could find something that would appease that, but but I, there wasn't that option. The only option was to to drop out and you know and do something on my own. Um, so uh, I, yeah, I felt that it was sort of it was grade thirteen. I was actually even repeating some of the courses that I you know I taking had to take calculus again because I didn't pass the AP version of it. So um, it was yeah, it just felt to me like more the same, and I and I regret that I would have been better just to have um, started earlier. One thing that we we couldn't let you uh, come on the show and, and not ask you is about the concept of a thousand true fans and. Mm. This is an idea that has been a guide point for for Joe and I in a lot of the work that we've done. So firstly, for our audience, could I just ask you to explain the premise behind him and what is a true fan? The premise is a bit of arithmetic. It started with the observation that um, we, in the kind of general population, me among myself, would often think that if we're a maker of things, if we're any kind of a, a creator, whether it be a photographer, um, sculptor, musician, filmmaker, photographer, author, um, you know, for making things that we, what we kind of hope for is in some ways is to become like a, a bestseller, a, a star to have, you know, to, to have a platinum record, to, um, you know, have a blockbuster. And, it, but if it turns out that that you know, and that means like you know millions of fans. I mean, who doesn't want to have millions of fans? But we but we tended to kind of think that that was sort of the necessary level of adulation, necessary level of of popularity in order to be successful. And I kind of did a reverse calculation and and said, well, you know, if you were working with you know a book publisher or a studio or a record label, because 
the reality is this artists get only a few percent of whatever it is that they're selling. Um, you know, like a book royalty would be 7% or something. So 7% of the total cost of the book is, is coming to me. And so you need to have these large numbers in order to, to make a livelihood. But I said, well, you know, what if you had, what if you used this technology that we have invented now of the internet and beyond, and you could have direct contact with your audience and you could have them give that money directly to you. So you, $25 book, the $25 in whole would come to you. Then you have a whole different calculation, a whole different um, numbers that you need. Your numbers are way smaller, certainly. And um, if you could imagine that um, you have direct contact with your fans and that you had true fans, you had fans that would basically buy whatever you produced. So there are there are, could be some subset of all the people that that liked you or your audience. There'd be some subset that were true radical super fans that would buy your hardcover and your softcover, or the or the book and the audible book, or they would drive all all day to come hear you uh, speak at a bookstore or if you were a band, they would buy the box set or if they were a filmmaker, they would get the extra edition, whatever it is, they would buy whatever they you produced. And then if you had um, or able to produce enough to sell to them some amount a year, $50 a year or $100 or whatever to your super fans, you wouldn't need that many to actually make a life, a livelihood, not a fortune, but a livelihood. And that number was somewhere around, say, a thousand. If you had a hundred dollars from each and you had a thousand true fans and you have a hundred thousand dollars a year. If you were duet or partners, you have to divide that by two or multiply that by two. So the but the range was the order of magnitude was was approximate and more most importantly, it was an achievable number. It was a number that you know, if you gain one true fan a day, you don't even need, you know, three years to to reach. And so um, the idea was, was that if you had direct contact with your fans and you cultivated those super fans, then, then it seemed of making a livelihood by doing what you love to do seemed to be more achievable. Um, so that was the kind of the premise. And then there's sort of several important subset thesis is around that. And, and the, sec the first one was that a thousand true fans, if, if that's true, if, if it's true that you could make a livelihood with a thousand super fans, then what that also would suggest is that you could find enough of those with this technology that we have of the global internet you could probably find a thousand of those somewhere in the world, no matter what you were interested in or what you were making. That 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 if um, your interests were really only interests one in a million other people, it's like only one in a million people are going to be interested in this. You're you know you collect you're, you're trying to grow um, you're trying to cultivate uh, um, chanterelle mushrooms. Okay, or you you you're interested in raising jellyfish in seawater or something, these really obscure, uh, niche things. Well, even if a one in a million people were doing it, with, with the billions of people that are on the planet, 
that means that there's probably a thousand people somewhere in the world that would be you super fans. And so, um, uh, that's, you know, you just have to find them or they have to find you, but that's, uh, in, in the realm of the possible. So that means that not only is the, the numbers that you need to support yourself probably much more achievable, but it's also true that no matter what you're kind of really interested in, there are probably uh, enough super fans somewhere else in the world to support you as well. And that's sort of the general thesis of what the true fans idea is. This is absolute gold. Just to clarify, so a super fan, this is the type of person that you release a course and they buy it. They're always interactive. Whatever it is essentially which you put out, they are the ones which are looking at it. They they are going to buy it. If you're an artist, they're buying your CD, your book, things like that. So so just a really type of interactive type of fan. Am, am I right in that, Kevin? The cost or the downside, the the price of this type of a, of a setup is that you're interacting with your fans and you're cultivating them, you are spending time. And there are several things to say about that. One is, this is a lot of work. Um, the reason why people gravitate to using, um, you know, publishers, uh, you know, um, record labels, uh, studios, is because it, it, it not only takes a lot of work, it also takes a certain kind of personality. It takes a certain amount of um, social skills that need to be um, uh, acquired. And some artists who don't want to deal with it, they say, I don't want to spend time, I just want to paint. And so the, 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 there is, there is a, a cost to doing it this way, which is that you have to spend time and you should probably should enjoy that time interacting with your fans in some capacity because that's what it takes. And so um, there is uh, a high level of engagement that's required. And for some people, they love it. This is fantastic. They're good at it. And there are honestly other people who are not as good at it and maybe don't love it as much, and those are probably correlated. And um, so, so it'll be more difficult, or they may need to have someone help them do that. And again, when there are other people involved, you have to kind of multiply that out. So it's not impossible, but it's just that there is a cost to doing it. For the people that subscribe to that idea then and see the, the benefit of it, how does someone initially go about the process of obtaining true fans to begin with? Well, yeah. So if you're like most people, you aren't beginning with true fans. You're, you're having to earn each one. So there's concentric circles. Well, you know, at the center, kind of like the bullseye are your super fan, your true fans who will buy anything. But there are also other fans out there. You know, there are occasional fans, people who, you know, uh, they'll they'll maybe buy one of your books, but not every single one of them, or they're not going to buy all the editions of it. Um, they're kind of casual fans. And then they're sort of out in the, beyond them are people who may have heard of you, um, and maybe they've read or they've heard of one of your songs or whatever. 
but they don't even it's not really even registering so 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 one of the values of the super fan the true fan is that they also become your marketing so it's it's their enthusiasm for you if you encourage them in the right direction they can help recruit so to speak other super fans or to turn a casual fan into a true fan so part of that process of how do you find the true fans is that you use whatever true fans you have maybe you start with your family maybe you start with some friends or whatever um, you use them to help you kind of gather um, the other true fans or convert people who know a little bit about you and that's through you know the engagement through a community through helping you know equip, equipping your fans to um share their enthusiasm for you you know that's where the kind of social media comes in um you know the the many ways in which you kind of are going to leverage and so to speak the the attention that you do have using it to garner more attention and of course you know the extreme version of that are people who are famous only because they're famous. They're famous for, for being famous. But so, so we know that those levers work in, in, in that sense. Um, but you, that's one of the ways that, that you would employ. And, and I would say, um, you know, the, the, you know, the tried and true maxim that, you know, making great stuff is still the primary way that you're going to, I mean, that's sort of like, that's sort of essential. You, that, that's the first job. You can't let up on that. You have to kind of constantly be, you know, remake, reinventing yourself in that direction. That's, that's the primary engine. That's the primary fire. But these other techniques of, um, you know, leveraging your true fans to find others is one thing. I, I think the, um, uh, you know, um, the other the other the other techniques of self-promotion guerrilla marketing are all part of that and that's you know that's where that's where the the friction comes for some artists who simply don't like it don't feel good about it um but that's you know that's the path now you don't have to have again you can just increase your fans and that's what every artist and creator and business person wants um and you know you 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 can you can accept having just casual fans so even casual fans are part of this ecosystem so uh, again it's not like you only only want true fans you know you want to have the whole the whole spread of fans but you want to you want to cultivate those true fans with um you know the extra intimacy that you have the um uh, the, the, you know, the, the bonus things, the, the stuff that's only for them, um, all that kind of stuff. And there's, there's plenty of books and courses and whatnot on, on how to, to do that. Um, but I, I just want to, again, emphasize that you do become a marketer, and that's part of the job skills that you would need to kind of pursue this this style of, of, of livelihood of relying on a thousand true fans. That is just an amazing explanation. And, and there are a few things which are coming to my mind when you said that. I'll see if I can try to articulate them. So the first thing in this would come to my mind is 
when I think about creating these true fans, I think that some things that could help are firstly appealing to someone's psychographic. So instead of appealing to demographic, age, sex, location, all these other things, appealing to someone's psychographic, so like what they dream of. And the other thing as well is, I love this idea, and I've heard Seth Godin talk about it, and he says that go where people are looking rather than insisting that they look at you because the attention economy is much higher. Do you agree with those things, Kevin? Yeah, yeah. Seth is the master. Whatever Seth says about marketing, I believe. Um, the skills of marketing are its not really, as you just, about um, selling, closing deals. It's much, there's a much more human element of appealing to, you know, deep desires that make us humans, of wanting to belong, of... Uh, being noticed, of um, feeling important, you know, all these basic fundamental, I wouldn't even call them emotions, they're almost sort of like um, directions that we, that we move in. And so, um, you know, using those to your advantage to, 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 to help share what you've made is, is really what marketing comes down to. Um, and, you know, if you're astute with this kind of stuff, um, you'll do well um it is you know it's 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 not just about having the right font or you know um using the right buzzwords it's 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 it's, it's a deeper it's a deeper skill of being empathetic in, in, in a real way and um i think you know what seth is true is he, he's kind of saying that marketing is really a kind of a higher level skill in the Maslow pyramid. It's really not just about um, trying to take someone's money and close a deal. It's really about identifying with them in some ways. Just something I'd like to ask you is that if I was to go to China right now and I mentioned the name Kevin Kelly, <laughs> would I be told that this is the gentleman that created the internet? <laughs> yes, unfortunately. If you'd mentioned KK, I'm known there as KK, um, my initials. Yes, unfortunately, I have this very warped, unrealistic, completely hyperbolic reputation that um, I have been unable to deflect. Where they, um, what they would say is that I predicted the internet. Not that I mean that I predicted the internet, which I didn't really. Um, and so that that's got me into the position right now. Where they okay. Okay, Mr. Kelly, can you make a prediction for me right now? Give me a prediction. It's like, I mean, literally, next week they, they literally say that. Give me a prediction. Um, and, you know, like a lot of other, you know, like a lot of science fiction writers, what I would say is I only predict the present. Um, that's the best we can do is um, predict the present. In fact, you know, doing scenarios, ma making science fiction is really kind of just a thought experiment of trying to predict the present, of trying to describe what's going on right now. You can't really predict the future um, in any degree, but we're trying to help us understand what's happening right now and the kind of direction that we're going. So I think the best we can get out of this kind of, well, we're headed in this direction, just from looking at the momentum of the past, 
where we're going. We're kind of like, that's sort of where we're aiming towards. And that's probably maybe the best that we can do. If we move the conversation on to talk a bit about AI and a lot of our audience are entrepreneurs, businessmen. So what I would like to ask is what should businesses be considering when it comes to AI and more importantly, how will it leave behind the people who neglect it and fail to adapt with it? We're far, far away from having people be left behind by AI at this point. This is still very early. Um, and, you know, I, in, in the, again, going to the direction where we're headed, we're headed in a direction where AI will, will impact every single business. It's sort of like saying, what's the impact of electricity on your business? If you didn't have electricity, would you have the same business? No, you, you, you just need that electricity, you know, even if it's just to run lights or your computers or whatever it is. So AI is sort of headed in that direction of becoming kind of this fundamental new electricity that's going to be powering. The, the question might be not whether we're left behind, but, you know, how can you take advantage of this? So it's imagining we're kind of in the very early days of the Industrial Revolution, and there's this new thing called electricity. And so you're, you're, you're whatever it is, you're a farmer or something, you're saying, well, can I use this at all? Would this benefit, would this give me any advantage as a business? And how do I deal with it? Well, you know, in the early days of the Industrial Revolution, businesses used to have something called the VP of electricity. It was so complicated and so knew that, you know, there's sort of a person in charge of figuring out how to make it, you know, where to get it from, what's good for, what can we do with it? And I think AI is a little bit in that category right now. So yes, even with the AI available today, you can do some interesting things with it. There are no books or courses that I know about telling you how to do this. So by far, the best way to do it is to go to Google or somewhere, and Google actually has a, a course. I don't know, I forget what it's called, the name of it. In a few hours, you will actually be um, programming, making a little neural net that can tell the difference between an orange and an apple. And so what I'm suggesting is that you fool around with it, that you, you, you buy AI like you can buy electricity. You buy it from the big cloud, Google, Microsoft, IBM. You purchase it. It's not very expensive. And just start to fool around with it. So it's like the early days of the electricity where the, the tinkerers are just kind of playing around with it in the barn. They're, they're, they're figuring out what it can do and what it can't do. And basically, you have, you're at the position of, position of tinkering with it. And here's the thing. If you tinker with this for like a, a couple of weeks, you will now know more about AI than than 99.95% of the people on the planet. You will become an expert very rapidly by just fooling around with it, trying stuff, coming up with an idea, what if we can do this with it, um, trying to apply, and, and you'll quickly learn more about it than most people with degrees because that's how fast this is moving. So my suggestion is, try it i'd love to ask you and this has always been on my mind ever since i heard lexi friedman explore this idea 
and that is what skills and qualities can we work on as humans to make ourselves somewhat indispensable for as as humans and you know things that ai may never be able to replicate i mean qualities sure. maybe like empathy or personality or i think there's two i think there's two qualities that i would like everybody to graduate from high school with and these two qualities by the way most of us don't even have and the first one the, the first uber skill that, that that i think every person graduating should have is the uber skill of optimizing their own ability to learn how to learn okay so learning how to learn is really the only skill that we're going to have because no matter where you are what you're going to be doing in two or three years does not even have a name right now and um whatever you study in school is not what you're going to be doing for sure so you're going to have to keep, keep learning and you know the, the the digital natives i have i have kids who are digital natives and they kind of rub their hand and say ah you know we're we're digital natives we we grew up with this stuff well you know in in, in another 10 years you're not going to be a digital native anymore there's going to be a whole nother thing you know vr ar all this kind of stuff and you're going to have to you're going to be the old geezer again you're going to be a newbie again yourself and you're going to have to relearn everything just like people who are 50 and 60 are going to relearn you're going to be in the same boat so there's no there's no escape from being a perpetual newbie and having to learn new things all your life and part of that learning new things is unlearning the old things but what we want to do which is what we don't know how to do and I'm including myself in this is we don't know how to optimize our own learning for our own selves, our own way of learning. Each of us has different strengths and abilities in learning, different ways we learn. Some of us need to sleep more in between each rep. Some of us need to be more kinetic and use our hands. Some of us are really learn best with our audio uh, in our ears. And so we need to discover that. We need to figure out. We need to be taught and helped and guided so that we can actually figure out how we learn best and all the different ways that we learn. And so that skill of like, oh, here's something. I know what I need to do with this. I need to practice this for this amount. And then I'm going to go away and rest. And then I'm going to come back. And I don't want to do, I can't do more than half an hour before I'm saturated. And so we don't have that. We, we've never been taught that skill. And that requires teachers and requires deliberate practice and requires um, a methodology which does not exist that I've seen anywhere. And so um, the, you know, some of us are better learners than others, but we've only learned that by hit or miss. There hasn't been any kind of a methodological approach to this to really maximize or optimize ourselves. Um, but that is, I think, the, the skill. So whatever state you're age, whatever age you are, if you can increase your ability to learn, that's number one thing because uh, what humans are we're incredibly adaptable and the way AI is coming in is that it's not very adaptable it's really difficult to transfer learning and so humans will continue for I might for the foreseeable future of being at the edge of something new and then learning how that works and then bringing it back and helping the robots to do it the second skill the second quality that I think for a very long time will be a huge advantage with um, humans is um, if you want an answer, 
you ask a machine. If you want a question, you hire a human. Humans, when they're trained, when at their best, humans can ask questions, good questions. And questions are becoming much more valuable once the answers are kind of becoming a commodity. They're free, they're ubiquitous. Machines give us answers. Um, we are going to gravitate to, and you'll hire people because they ask good questions. Questions are like, it's kind of like an investigation. It's like being curious. It's like being a discoverer. It's like an explorer. It's an inventor. Those are all kinds of, kind of way of asking questions. What if we did this? How about that? Um, why do we do it this way? Um, what if we did this? Um, why can't we do that? So those are all what humans would be doing for the foreseeable future. That's such a fascinating answer and something definitely to ponder there. We're just going to start winding this interview down now and then we have just three short questions to ask you, Kevin. First question, we ask all our guests these and we'd be fascinated to hear your answer, is are there any societal rules that you like to break? Hmm. Um, I like to wear old clothes. Are there any books which have greatly impacted your life? Oh, yes. Um, there's a number of books. I mentioned kind of earlier the book called The Whole Earth Catalog, which was this compendium, user-generated content of um, recommendations and reviews of other tools and books that would help one do independent learning or independent living of um, kind of, um, of the do-it-yourself. And it was done by Stuart Brand, who's now a friend. It's very wide-ranging in its approach, not just, you know, uh, repairing your own Volkswagen, but, um, you know, how you would approach a spiritual life, how you would um, try and um, do entrepreneurship, how you would, uh, you know, start a business or um, how you start a movement. Um, let's say you want to do, um, make a, a political movement. So here, you know, how do you get elected in a local election? So all these kinds of things, hugely influential. Um, but an, another book besides that was the Bible. Um, I think everybody, at least in the West, maybe even the world, anybody in the world should read the Bible all the way through at least once in their lives because whatever you think it says, including those who are fervent believers, whatever you think it says, it doesn't say that. You just, have, just read it through once, and it is like mind-bogglingly disturbing in the good and bad ways. Um, but I highly recommend that, and I'm surprised how few people have ever done that considering the influence that that book has had on our cultures. Uh, I could go on, um, but that was the third, what's the third uh, question? The, the last question we ask everyone is, um, if you could somehow distill the lessons that you've learned in your life mm -hmm. and sort of put that into um, a short but impactful message or a lesson that, that you would try and share with everyone in the world if you could, what would that message or lesson be? Uh, I would actually borrow or steal um, something that my friend Esther Dyson says, which is um, always make new mistakes. Um, I like 
changing my mind. I like, in fact, the second motto is coming from Tim Leary. It says, you're only as young as the last time that you changed your mind. And so um, I like this idea of, um, you know, uh, trying things that don't work, um, making new mistakes, this idea of constantly trying, you know, I don't want to keep making the same mistake, I want to make new mistakes. Um, so I'm, I'm cautious in that certain sense of like not making old, old mistakes, um, but I want to be at the forefront, at the edge of making new mistakes and this idea of kind of uh, making a life that is at the edge. Um, and I guess maybe the third little way I would say is what I am trying to do with my life is to expand the possible, expand possibilities, to, to increase opportunities for today's people and those yet unborn, to basically to kind of expand the space of opportunities and, and potential for all people born today and to come. And so for me, that's what technology does. That's why I'm increased. That's why I'm for positive for technology. But it's also about making sure that the opportunities and possibilities that we do have are spread throughout the world, so that every child has the opportunity, you know, to be what they could be. And sometimes that means having new technology, but it also means absolutely having clean water, access to power, um, you know, safe environment and education. So. Um, expanding the realm of all possibilities to everyone on the world, born and yet born. So that's what my agenda is. Kevin, this has been an absolute pleasure, and thank you so much for coming on the show. It's really a delight. Thank you for your great questions, your very human questions. And I um, really enjoyed our conversation.